Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into another episode of my favorite podcast. Hopefully, it's becoming yours as well. Take back our schools. My name is Bethany Mandel, and I am a mother of five. I homeschool my older children, and I'm also a contributing writer for Deseret News, where I write a column about once a week. And I am an editor here at Ricochet, which is our host, our gracious host for this podcast. Please check them out. And also, I'm an editor for a new children's book series called Heroes of Liberty. So if you haven't yet checked us out, please do, because uh, it's a fantastic way to build your, your children's bookshelves, heroesofliberty.com. Uh, I am joined today, I, I want to introduce my co-host first, and then we'll sort of talk about our guest for today. But my co-host today and every day is Andrew Gutman. Yep, I'm Andrew Gutman, the Brearley Dad, accidental educational activist, uh, co-founder of the Institute for Liberal Values, founder of Speak Up for Education. Um, for folks who are just tuning in, um, what do you mean by the Brearley Dad? I'm the guy who wrote a letter to all the parents of my daughter, my daughter's former New York City fancy private school that went viral uh, about six months ago. So everyone now calls me the Brearley Dad. The Brearley That'll Dad. That'll stick with me so forever, I guess. You, we have someone on today who I think is a kindred spirit. Um, she is, uh, she is the Montgomery County mom. It doesn't have the same roll off your tongue as the rarely dead. We could make something out of that. Yeah. Well, we Montgomery did. Mom or something. We did. So we okay. call her Relentless Reisman. We figured you you coined that. So her name is Dr. Jen Reisman, and I give uh, a super long-winded introduction of her. Um, she's a local mom here in Montgomery County who I became friends with over the course of the pandemic. Um, but I wanted to have her on because she kind of gives a um, and not enough of it. I want to have her back, um, but there's only so much time you can actually have a podcast, but she sort of outlines all the advocacy work that she did in Montgomery County, in addition to her full-time job as a neuropsychologist, psychiatrist, I don't remember which one, but she says it, so we'll let her say that. Um, but she has been really successful, honestly, in Montgomery County, which is a very deep blue suburb of Washington, D.C., and um, we are like closed for business forever in perpetuity and always amen. Um, and she's, she's fighting back against that. Um, so one of the things that we, we talked about was um, how, she, how she filed an open meetings request and, um, and how she eventually got the school board to reopen in person and why that was important. Um, but I, I think... The, the hardest part about sort of navigating all of this stuff, Andrew, is figuring out like, who's the bureaucrat I need to yell at? And how do I yell at that person? Um, so Jen answers that a little bit. But I want you to answer the question of how does one gather the chutzpah? Because you had chutzpah out your ears to become the Brearley Dad. So how does one gather the chutzpah to be the Brearley Dad or the relentless Reisman? Well, I think you got to realize you got to be fighting for your kids. And, and you say, look, son, this is ridiculous. What's going on? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Is that something innate or is that something learned? I, I really honestly don't know. I mean, you have the same chutzpah for doing what you do. Uh, clearly, we've seen it very apparently that most people don't have that for a whole number of reasons. But, you know, I think you come to the breaking point where you say, you know, we've got to fight for our own kids and we've got to fight for all the kids. We've got to fight for the country. Um, and you just kind of do it. Yeah. I don't know. That's not a great answer. But. No, I know. And it, it's a hard question because um, I, I think that for me, and I think maybe for Jen, I think the answer is it has to be okay for people to not agree with you. And you just have to be okay with that. And that's a really hard thing. Um, it sounds easy enough, like, okay, I don't care. But when you know that your neighbor hates you, which like my neighbors talk about me on Nextdoor and Facebook, so I know that's the case. It's hard. It's hard to go to the supermarket and run into these people who have yelled at you on Facebook. And it's hard to go to a, a synagogue event and be like, oh, yeah, you're that Does lady. it bother you? Um, so it only bothers me when it involves my kids. And so when we were living in New Jersey, I think I've told this story on our podcast. Um, my kids stopped getting birthday party invitations, um, because of my politics. 
Um, and that, that really stunk. Um, but what I've sort of come to, to recognize, and I think that Jen and I did this a little bit is like, you kind of have to find your people and those are just your people and you need local people. And I mean, like you can have sort of nationwide people, but you really need local friends. And, um, Jen became a local friend and I felt better about sort of what I'm doing to my kids' social lives because I don't want my kids to be friends with these people's kids. And it doesn't make it fair or easy to them, but do I think that my children are better off not being friends with these people's kids? Yeah. Do, how, your oldest is how old now? Eight. And does she, I mean, she's young. Did she recognize that? I mean, she, I mean, cause my daughter is now 13. She knew what was happening. She knew that the other kids had really had, you know, ostracized her or were talking mm-hmm. about her and, and everything, calling me the racist. Mm-hmm. Um, at eight years old, I mean, do you think you're, there's a she's, recognition there? She's starting to realize it. Yeah. Okay. She, um, w- there was a, a recent thing um, that happened when we were out in public and someone clearly knew who I was. And my daughter was like, wow, that person was really rude to you. Is that because of what you do? And I was like, yeah, actually. See- that's interesting. See, I have not, I've had obviously a lot of crap online. Yeah. Twitter, what have you. Um, I've never had a negative incidence in person ever. And I get recognized in New York city sometimes, but so far it's been 100% positive. Yeah. And we, so, we've had too. I mean, like when we were in Hershey park, not Hershey park, um, like Hershey experience the, there's like a chocolate world. The chocolate there. thing. Yeah. It smells yeah, good in yeah. there. Doesn't it? <laughs> so we were there oh no wait you know what no this isn't true we were at turkey hill we were at like an ice cream factory also in lancaster. oh i wanted to do that it's good we did do that is it good yeah it's good i reckon okay all right we'll have to that's in um, lancaster right yeah it is where okay. things are normal the land of normal yeah so um so we were sitting and eating ice cream and a guy came up to us and was like oh it's a mandel spotting in the wild and me <laughs> and my husband were like what who are you, sir? Um, and my my daughter, who is eight and like extremely perceptive, was like, "Do we we don't know that man, but he knows who you are." And yeah. I'm like, oh, this is kind of a side effect of what we do. Um, so, but we, I mean, yeah, we've gotten we've gotten negative stuff before for sure. Um, and my my daughter um, is now starting to recognize, like, oh, that's because they know what you say and what you write. Um, but at the same time, I also try to, I mean, this is like extremely unique. Problem. Does she know what you say and what you write? Not really. I mean, she okay. knows that I've been outspoken about COVID stuff, um, but she also lives in, she lives in a house of two parents who are like-minded. And so she is like-minded as well because she's not at an age where she can have her own opinions. And so yeah. Other kids hurt. I mean, people who post online, like my, even my eight-year-old knows this. It's like, no, you've told your eight-year-old that. And then she's regurgitating it. Right. And I at least recognize that that's what's happening in our house. Like my, my eight-year-old isn't like this brilliant. I mean, she is also, but um, I, I will say she does recognize the absurdity of mask stuff. Um, and she, she says that to me sort of alone. So she says like, why is that person only sometimes wearing a cloth mask? Cloth doesn't work. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. And also like how that person is wearing, like none of that makes sense. And so she she does intrinsically get that. And I, I try to sort of drive home to her, like we get good stuff because mommy and daddy work in politics and, and our sort of, our notoriety is what it is. Like we get involved in Passover programs and we get invited to them for free. Like that's a perk honey, <laughs> we're not spending that money to go on a Passover program unless someone is doing it for us. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, that's, that's one of the hardest things is like having to be okay with, um, with people being mad at you. And uh, one of the things that Jen and I uh, have done is form a group in Montgomery County pu- trying to push the county back towards normalcy. And we talk about it on this episode called Revive MoCo. And you can find us on Facebook if you're local to Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, And people have asked in the group, like, how can I spread the word about what we're trying to do? And I said, every time you see COVID talked about on Nextdoor, on Facebook, uh, on Reddit, comment with this link. And, um, And 
only one or two people have done it, uh, despite the fact that we have like 600 people in the group and everyone's pretty amped. Um, only one or two people of those 600 have done it. And um, they're floored by the response. They're like, everyone was so mean to me. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's going to happen. Yeah. You kind of have to just be okay with that. So how do we get more people? That's the question. To speak up. I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of where you started this asking me that question. I mean, what does it, what does it take to do that? Yeah. We're not making much progress until we get more people to join the site. Yeah. I mean, and for education broadly, you know, COVID's part of it and all the other stuff. So I think that, and I think that Jen talks about it on this episode also, I think that people have to recognize um, just, so Jen and I have fought for a couple of really niche things that seem sort of on the outside. So one of the things we fought about and we talk about it is reinstating in-person car seat checks um, in our county. And, um, And I think that what she shares about, you know, the brain injuries that she's seen as a clinician are really powerful. And I think that when people hear more of those kinds of things, when people hear about just what is at stake and what harms are being done to children, to innocent children, um, that, that is very motivating. And I think that we need to just keep on sharing. Like one of the things we didn't talk about, um, was this really terrifying news story that came out of Baltimore, which is really close to us, um, that uh, high schoolers on average were reading at a grade school level, testing um, in the beginning of the school year. And there was news stories and those news stories get buried and that's because of the unions. Um, And so you kind of just have to scream that kind of stuff from the rooftops. Um, And like COVID wasn't the start of educational disparities and educational neglect and and all of these things, but sure did shine a light on it. It exposed it. I mean, edu- public education has really sucked yeah. for a long time. Yeah. So without further ado, I want to introduce our, our conversation with Dr. Jen Reisman. Um, she is uh, a force to be reckoned with. Please enjoy our interview with her. I have the great pleasure of welcoming to our show this week, uh, one of my favorite local friends who I made over the course of COVID, Dr. Jen Reisman. Um, I want to let you introduce yourself because I will not do all of your fancy titles justice, but just to open up, she is a doctor. She's very fancy. Very fancy. So I am very fancy Jen Reisman. I am a pediatric neuropsychologist. And because most no one knows what a pediatric neuropsychologist is, I usually explain that I am a psychologist first, and I have additional training in working with children with developmental differences, with learning differences, with different problems that affect their brain. So if there is something bad that can happen to a child, it can end up in my office. I work a lot with children with disabilities, and I'm also a mom here in Montgomery County, Maryland, and I am a parent to a sixth grader. So I'll say how we first met, but first, you were extremely vocal about opening the schools during COVID, which I definitely want to talk about. But I think we first met because we have started a group here in Montgomery County called Revive MoCo. And the first thing we did that we didn't know we were doing at the time, we just were really super passionate about it. Um, were two things, the libraries and car seats. And so over the course of COVID, I've been just like angry. I think a lot of people have and how you we're very similar. You and I get out our anger by like, I will do something about this. I will fix this. We are fixers. And so we first bonded over our anger at the library system, just completely crapping the bed. They had their moment to shine. They, the kids were not in school. They could have done so many things to make themselves invaluable and they stayed closed. And then when they finally reopened, it was only for curbside pickup and you had to ask for books like three weeks in advance and then pick a 15 minute pickup window a week late. Like I kept on missing the pickup windows because I was like, I don't know when I'm going to be free in 30 minutes, let alone in a week. I can't predict when I can go pick up books from your curbside. So that was one way that we bonded. The other way that we bonded was 
Um, I was having another baby who's currently sitting in my lap. So excuse any baby sounds. Um, so I have a little bit of a complicated car seat situation because I have five children who all require seats of some kind. And I was like, how do I do this? This, um, what's the Jenga? Is that the right word? It's totally baby Jenga. Yeah. And, right. Where you have to do who fits in what, where it's Tetris and Jenga all combined. Yeah, Tetris. That's what I was looking right, for. It, yes. it's, but if you don't get it right, it is like Jenga because yeah. car seats are life and death, right? Yes. Like, this is our children. And we're talking about life or death situations. If the car seat is not especially if, properly, especially if I'm driving, let's all be honest. This is one thing I have to be very serious about because there are, there's no room for error when mom is driving. So I'm a car seat Nazi, self-described before that reason. And so I went to on the website to figure out, you know, how the county could figure out my car seat situation and they were closed. And it was like a year and three months into this crap. And I was like, oh my God, have you not been checking car seats this whole time? And it's, it's, I, I so I wrote a fantastic uh, piece for Deseret News last, or I guess it was like the beginning of December. And I said like, you know, they're completely ignoring the full mental, the full public health picture for COVID. And this is one of those ways they, they're not doing car seat checks, which is outside because of COVID. Meanwhile, how many kids are going to die because their car seats aren't installed properly? Well, so, so as a neuropsychologist, I can tell you that it also got me into it when you pointed this out, because part of my training is working with kids with severe and significant brain injury. So if you've spent any time on a rehabilitation hospital unit, and you've seen kids recovering from brain injury and have seen firsthand kids relearning how to walk, relearning how to talk because they weren't in an appropriately installed car seat when they've been injured and they're really little and they did absolutely nothing wrong. Like this, you, you, you cannot unsee that. So when I heard that yeah. from you, I was, I was an uproar. I was really ashamed yeah. of what our yeah. county had done. Yeah. So you and I um, shamed our county single double-handedly you and I into re-offering those car seat checks. And, you know, if I accomplish nothing else over the course of this pandemic, I'm really proud of that. So how did um, we do and that? So how did we do that? So Jen, yeah. you answer that question. So, well, Bethany did some excellent social media shaming, right? She gave me these lovely tweets that she had done and she was out there. I also just got really annoying and did what any good neuropsychology advocate does on behalf of their patients. So if someone doesn't give me the answer that I need and it's my kid on the line, I'm going to keep calling and I'm going to go up the chain. So I called the fire and rescue service. Um, I emailed them. I called their public information office and I said, what's going on? There's no rule that we have in our county at this point in time that prohibits this from going on. There's no public health reason that it can be not done in person. What's going on? And I could not get an answer. So I kept calling and I kept emailing because I said, I, I, you know, I'm a clinician. I work with young children. This is an important public health issue. We need to keep going. And I think it was probably a good two to three weeks of continuous calls and emails to them until I finally got a message back that said, we are resuming in-person car seat checks. Um, and so this was this was like the most long-winded introduction ever, and I apologize. But this is why I wanted to have Jen on our show, because she is relentless. And I love that. I love relentless. That's what that's what we should call you. Fancy Dr. Jen Reisman. Relentless. Relentless Reisman. Yeah. That's your, so one of my other missions is to get her to run for County council and that will be your tagline. Relentless reason. Yeah. You know, if it's for the kids, why should we give up? We should not give up easily if it's for our children. Yeah. So that was my very long winded introduction of why I wanted to have you on the show because our last episode, we talked to, um, do you know, Erica Sanzi? Not, but I can't wait to learn more. Yeah, you'll like her a lot. And you guys are very kindred spirits. Um, but she kind of like laid out the land in a little bit of a depressing way, but it was an, it was a necessary conversation of like, these are all the things going wrong. Um, but I really feel like you are a fixer and I wanted to pick your brain for the sake of all of our listeners around the country of like, how can we replicate your relentlessness? Because you've, achieved impressive things. First of all, the car seat check, which is no small lift. 
Um, do you want to tell everybody your relentlessness with the library systems? Tell tell everyone what you did to the libraries and how you made a librarian cry. That's a joke. Probably. I don't know. So our libraries here in Montgomery County were closed for a really just strangely, absurdly long amount of time, right? And there was only the curbside service that you described. It was really inconvenient. It was really challenging. And I think a lot of folks failed to realize how necessary our libraries are in terms of just the social fabric, right? There is, they are the one place that you can go and exist and not need to spend any money. They're the one place that you can go and exist and learn for absolutely free. Um, they're for children. They're for old people. They provide a ton of just social safety net types of things. And they're wonderful institutions. And unfortunately, in Montgomery County, Maryland, they were closed. So again, we started with just being relentless in calling and emailing and tweeting about it. Why can I go to a bar? What I can I go and do absolutely anything else? I could go to a trampoline park, but I could not go and pick up a book at my local public library, which we know further drove inequity, right? So people who could afforded to buy books on Amazon for their children, kids who normally would have, you know, trekked to the library, the Ben Carsons of the world, couldn't. And who knows what we've done to kids by not closing our libraries for that long. So writing, calling, emailing, tweeting pretty relentlessly about why we needed our libraries open. And they eventually reopened. I'm still disappointed, though, and I don't feel like I've called libraries a success quite yet, because at least here locally, a lot of things have gotten, you know, kind of swept under the rug. And for libraries, our library hours are still down 27 percent. So that means and, and true story. I'm not planting this story, but I'll share this anecdote with you. I get to work with a lot of really cool kids and teenagers every darn day. Kids come into my office. They tell me all sorts of things. I get to do testing with them. I get to work with their families. And the other day I had a teenager in my office. Now she wants to be the first in her family to go to college. She's really bright. I tested her. She's got all sorts of strengths. She also has really bad ADHD. And I ask every kid who comes into my office, you know, at some point in time, hey, you know, if you could wish, what, what would you wish for? What do you wish could be better? And she tells me, I really wish the libraries would be open past 6 p.m. So I would have a safe place to study that wasn't distracting because she also has like little siblings at home. And so they're super distracting when she's trying to study on her AP bio and chemistry and everything else that she's taking because she's a really bright kid going places. And that just broke my heart. And she had no idea that I've been working, you know, on the library issue and everything else. But that broke my heart. We shouldn't have kids wishing for that. We should have libraries that are open, reasonable, decent hours that allow kids to go and study after school. That should be something we expect. Were they open later pre-COVID? They, they never opened? They were. Okay. They were. They were open on Sundays pre-COVID. They're not open on Sundays at all. So it's just not even an option for her. And we have no idea when they're coming back. We're going to keep pushing them on that. Um, one success we had is that they did bring back some limited in-person programming. So things like story time, things like that should should all be things that children should be able to go to if their parents can't provide that for them. It should be events that they should have. Your success in, in the libraries and in the car seats, how much can you attribute that to, though, your credentials? Because you come about this with, obviously, the credentials to be able to say, you know, this is ridiculous. Other parents that don't have those credentials maybe can't make the same amount of impact. So I think it's important also, one of the things that I do bring, yes, I do bring my credentials and I will wave those credentials around when they work on behalf of our children. I think the other part is this, this expectation that people have had, particularly here in Montgomery County, that may not be as much in other places to say, this is just unacceptable. And for all of our children, there are things that they need and deserve. Things like libraries, things like in-person school. These are things that our children need and deserve. And we need to stop saying, when do we start giving that up? We, we really need to draw that line in the sand, I think, as parents, even without credentials, to say, this is something my child needs and deserves as, as a human. The libraries, I think, are another one of your personal victories. Another success that you had um, that I would love you to sort of expound upon, like, exactly how you did it was um, the in-person board meetings for the school board. Why is that important? Why did you make that your hill to die on? And how did you not die on that hill? How did you come, come out the other side? Um, because they were using the excuse of, I mean, this is, this is the problem with COVID. It's not just COVID. It's everyone is using COVID as an excuse to not do their jobs. And uh, the school board refused to meet in person for a very long time. And our county council is still not meeting in person. And it's how they can um, meet and then see someone like Bethany Mandel on the schedule and have a technical difficulty and skip my testimony. 
it's crazy how that happens. It was just a mistake. Did that happen more than once? Yeah, just once so far. Well, okay. I'm I'm on the schedule for the next meeting. We'll see how that goes. Okay. Um, but um, but when you meet in person, you can't silence people. And um, Jen, Dr. Jen, took that um as a rallying cry. And I I would love for you to sort of share that story of like, how did you make that happen before the county council is doing it? Yes, I think we need to realize that there's something magical about the public meeting, right? There's reasons why we have open meeting acts on, on the books across states. There's, there's a reason for that because sunshine is extremely important and it's really important as a value for people to be able to witness their lawmakers, their decision makers up close and personal and also to be heard. So I think another thing just want to say about me, why I come at this and why I chose this is kind of like a hill that I was willing to take on was a lot of my work centers around disability access right? So I work with kids and youth. I went to Gallaudet University. And if you want to talk about the importance of accessibility, talk to deaf people. You want to talk about people who are willing to protest for their rights, talk to deaf people. So I, I want to say going to Gallaudet gave me a lot of perspective as a hearing person myself in terms of the rights for individuals to just have access and to, and to not discriminate on that. So right off the bat, I can tell you that sitting there as a hearing person watching those school board meetings that were occurring on Zoom, or that we're occurring with board members in the room, but all of the testimony virtual, first thing I recognized was that that was wholly inadequate for any kind of disability access, right? I never saw any testimony by anybody who needed a sign language interpreter. I never saw anybody in a wheelchair testifying. And you know that those people were just really shut out automatically when things went virtual. For all the talk that we do about how virtual has created more accessibility for some things, we have to recognize that it's limited accessibility in some way. So that's just where I came from. Um, then in the summer of 2021, our school board announced that, you know, the, the school board members would be mostly in the room, but there was nobody else in the room. The public wasn't there. And that was really bananas to me because at that point in time, children were allowed back in classrooms in our county. Teachers were in classrooms. Everybody who wanted a vaccine could get a vaccine. All of these things were there. All these barriers were removed. And they kept citing COVID as a reason not to allow in-person meetings, even though all of the restrictions on in-person gatherings and limits and everything else had all been lifted. So I wrote to the County Department of Health and Human Services and said, I would really like to testify in person. And they said, there's no reason you can't. I asked the Board of Education that and they said, no, we are only submitting, you know, we are only allowing you to submit recorded audio and recorded video testimony. I said, that's really not acceptable to me. I, I repeat my ask. I'd like to ask it to be there in person. No, no, no. We're not allowing anybody in the room. Well, then they posted on social media, our board of education, that they were swearing in their new student member of the board, which is really cool, right? That's, that's an awesome event. She's getting sworn in. It's exciting. And they basically posted pictures on social media that there was a party there. There were other lawmakers there. There were other members of the county council, her parents, and they even had food there, right? So people are taking off their masks and having reception and drinking and, you know, not, sorry, not drinking alcohol, but, you know, having refreshments. And they posted on their social media. And unfortunately for them, I live probably like a mile and a half from the Board of Education building. So I saw that on social media and I decided I was just going to go over there. And so I drove over there, got in my car, right? And I brought my kid, you know, she's 11. It's the summer. I love you. I'm with camp. So I, I, you know, this is partially just, you know, I made a decision. I'm just going to drive over there. And all of the signs on the door say no entry. You must have masks. This is, this building is closed to the public. So I knocked on the door and nobody came. And then I just looked at my daughter and I said, try opening that door, sweetheart. And she did and it opened. So here's this building that says that they're completely closed to the public and everything. But um, the door was open because they were having a party inside, you know, just a few hours before. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a gigantic rule breaker, I swear, but I, I didn't go in. But of course, because I had been there for a little bit, uh, started filming, had my daughter there because I was curious, like, what's going to happen if I if I ask just to go in the building, you know, just to see it? Are they going to tell me, no, what's going to happen? And turns out the superintendent's chief of staff and somebody else from the board of education came out and told me that I couldn't come in. And I said, well, why? You told me that this building, they cited that the building was closed to the public as the reason that they would not let me testify in person. And I said, you're having a party in there. That does not look closed to the public to me. I would like to testify. And at that point in time, I had already filed an Open Meetings Act complaint against them for not allowing the public in. 
at that point in time. So kind of caught them, shamed them a little bit. Um, that was my one of the, did they know who you are when you walk, were walking in there? I mean, I, I was masked, of course. And, but I did tell them, I did tell them, I said, hi, you know, my name is Dr. Jen Reisman. I filed an open meetings act complaint and I, I, I'd like to know why you're having a party here and, and why you won't let me testify at your next meeting. I think they had a meeting probably the following week. I had filmed some of my testimony outside of their building before, just to make the point of why won't you let me in the room? You're there. I'm vaccinated. I'll wear a mask. I swear I'm not a gigantic rabble rouser. I would just like to be in the room to look you in the eye, quite honestly, because I think there's something extremely powerful about that. And this is putting my psychologist hat on is that there is something powerful about human connection that we can't forget. And especially when we're talking about people making policy decisions that impact over 160,000 students, they really need to look in parents' eyes when they're making some of those decisions. And they really rob the public of that when they close that. Here's my question. How do you know how to navigate all of this? I think that all, so we're not done talking about all the things that you're doing, but I want to, I want to ask you like for, for the average parent, uh, I mean, you, you are not, you're not experienced in bureaucracy. So how did you know how, who and how to contact the Department of Health? And like, one of the things that you and I did was um, we had a Zoom call, of course, with, um, with a staffer for the county council member who handles the library system. And one of the, I, I want to tell this story because um, it's one of my favorite stories. We're chatting with her about the lack of in-person story time. And I said to my two-year-old, sweetheart, come here. And the woman just thought that I was like, you know, pulling, pull, putting my kid on my lap. And I, I said like, so this is my two-year-old. I understand that you have no urgency in bringing back library programming. She was a newborn when this started. So I understand that two years feels like a long time to you. It is literally a lifetime to her, literally a lifetime. So your lack of urgency is not acceptable to her. And she has never had the opportunities that her siblings have had um, because of your policies and your lack of urgency. But Jen, you got us on the phone with this woman. How did you know? How, how do you contact these people? And how do you know the right person to contact and like navigate this web of um, bureaucracy? So I think, I guess that gets back to this persistence part, right? Of, I will just keep asking the question. So of who do I need to meet with? Who do I need to talk with? And not dropping it. Because I think one of the things that are, one of the ways our bureaucracies get us is by an initial no. And then thinking that most people are going to stop asking. And that is exactly as someone in healthcare, I can tell you that that's the exact same way insurance companies operate. And I love to be relentless with them as well, because they expect that most people, when they get a no, will just stop. And so when you say, well, okay, I'd like to appeal that, right? Or I would like to talk to your supervisor. I would like to know what's the next level I need to go up to. I yearn for the day when I no longer know the names of all of my elected county council representatives. I can remember back in 2019, Jen, 2018, Jen, she didn't know who all was there because they were largely running meaningless outside of my lives. And I I miss that blissful time of life. That will never be the case because they're going to be your colleagues when you're serving on the county council, when I oh, make- I'm going to laugh about that so hard. I'm not sure. I, I, no, I really like what I do with patients. I really like what yeah. I get to do with kids. Can you do both? I don't know because most of them make a career out of being a local politician, which is not the case. It's not what it should be, right? I, I feel like we wish that these people just did their jobs so that they would become anonymous because things right. would just work. And we know their names and we know what they're doing because things aren't working well. And, and, you know, kind of Houston, we have a problem here in terms of how things are going with a lot of things at our local stage right now. It's really disappointing. Are you getting support from other parents? From other, I, I know that both of you are in this fight in Montgomery County. I mean, were you getting it? Are you getting more support now? Is that support growing? I feel like it is. I think one of the things that's really challenging is battling some apathy. So if there's anything that folks listening right now can recognize is that there is a place for parent voice. There is a place for people who care about kids to speak up on all of those issues in many ways. And for a long time, I think folks, especially during COVID, got shut out of many of those mechanisms um, and that people now need to start to care about it because nobody else is. 
Um, and that's been a disappointing thing. I think also there's, there was a long kind of, I had this faith and confidence that there would be large professional organizations, that there would be those people that were elected to positions of power to do right by our kids and by our community, and that they'd ultimately do the right thing, recognize that there was a problem, but the challenge we're seeing now is that there wasn't. So I think fighting apathy is probably one of the biggest things and being able to speak up and say it's not okay, which is hard, I think, for parents to do sometimes to admit that what's going on is not okay. So um, I'm going to make you answer Andrew's question in a different way. So in addition to the organizing we're doing with Revive MoCo, which is just to get normalcy back generally in the county, you're also really involved with Montgomery County Accountability something, something, something. Montgomery Um, County Families for Education and Accountability, MFEA, yes. Okay. That was not the best name choice. I'm just going to throw that out there. No, it no. needs to be together again, MCPS, just to get our schools open. Um, I know, and they're great. And then yeah, something I else. I don't think they would have opened if it had we not kept pushing. No, I don't think so either. So I want you to talk about all of that advocacy and yeah. and like th- your fight is not over. And this is a well-timed podcast record because there's some shenanigans going on with the school board. Um, so can you sort of I think that this is the next frontier in our school's fight um, for a normal, predictable, stable calendar. What's going on in Montgomery County now with this calendar? Educational disruption is the name of what my biggest concern is. So putting back on my professional hat, as well as my parent hat right now, um, I think the data is extremely disturbing. And it's something that there's a lot of push to hide it, right? There's a lot of desire for parents for decision makers that kept schools closed for so long during the last academic year to to make it seem like everything's okay, right? Everyone wants, and that's just human nature. So speaking as a psychologist, everyone wants to have this wonderful confirmation that what we did was for a good reason and it didn't hurt our kids. And speaking as a professional, I can tell you that is not the case. The data are rolling in from all over in terms of studies, in terms of what are we seeing in terms of actual achievement and outcomes that kids overall, especially those most vulnerable who came from marginalized communities, those with disabilities, those who didn't have English as a first language in the home, those kids are not able to do math and to read as well as their peers pre-pandemic. And that's terrifying. Right. And that happened in places and it's made worse in places where schools were closed the longest. And right now, right, if I were to tell you, okay, so what's the nationwide plan or even the statewide plan for schools that stayed closed for a really long time? We don't have that. And that's terrifying. I think that's something that a a lot of folks thought we'd have at this point in time would be, okay, well, there's this period of online learning that we're going to have. And then there's going to be a plan for what we're going to do next. And, you know, there is no plan, which is the terrifying part. Are you looking at the mental health issues as well as the educational achievement issues? Because obviously both things have been impacted by school closures and remote schools and everything else. I'm seeing that in the clinic on the daily. Back in April of 2020, a colleague of mine, Dr. Tana Holt-Lynn, who's in Florida, she had you know tweeted out about concerns about mental health and kids. And I remember seeing that. And I was in the middle of a clinic day where I was on telehealth and in April of 20. So you know, at least here, people were pretty much on lockdown. And I had done more safety planning at that point in time than I had done in 10 years of professional work with children on the daily. The fact that I had done more safety planning in two months than I had done in 10 years scared the living daylights out of me. And, you know, it was just go, go, go. There was such a need. I didn't have time to think about the advocacy side of things or long-term. I was just taking care of my patients. So I think we've seen a crisis. It's only getting worse. And now we're seeing things that I would hope would be addressing it, but really are just kind of band-aids at this point in time. And, and kids are in crisis. They think that mental health crisis is worsening. And then we've taken away the structure and support of school. So I really see it as kind of these overlapping issues, right? Where if we look at kids, so there's like nationwide, 13% of kids get special education services in school. Some of those special education services are actually mental health services. And if you look at that percentage of kids, something like 35% of kids get their only mental health treatment within our, the walls of our public schools. So when we closed schools for such a long time, we took away some of those supports. So a lot of folks really predicted that when kids get back to school, we're going to see a lot of unmet needs. We're going to see a lot more crisis. We're going to see a lot more acuity. And guess what? That's exactly what we're seeing when the schools open back 
here in Montgomery County, um, by the beginning of November, we saw, sorry, um, we saw more police calls to schools than we had seen the entire 20, uh, I guess it would be 2018 to 2019 school year, like the, the most, um, the most normal recent school year. Um, what do you think is going on? And I, I would love to sort of hear your perspective as a parent as well. Like, what are you hearing from your daughter? I think there's a lot of issues going on and I would tackle almost like what's happening at the high school level, what's happening at the middle school and elementary school level differently. So for our high schoolers, right, they had mass disruption and really a lessening of expectations around their work, lessening of expectations for just their ability to even sit. And I can share that, you know, I had high schoolers coming into my office, bringing in blankets and stuffed animals. Their ability to cope went way down society's expectations for what they were doing because they were allowed to do Zoom school at home in their pajamas and everything else. We really removed demands from them. And then when we reopened the schools here in Montgomery County, we just went from like zero to 60, right? So all of a sudden kids that were used to roll out of bed at 9 a.m., which by the way, is actually a decent thing for them. And they're developing brains, sleeping later, later start times. That's a whole other discussion. That's good for them. But now we're making them get up earlier and they're crankier. And we're putting all these demands on them. And remember that lack of national plan that I talked about? We haven't provided them with any of the supports that they needed. So they lacked all of those foundational skills that they needed. And then we put them into these gigantic pressure cookers of expectations without any kind of support. That was a real recipe for disaster. Um, And thinking that things would go well, I think was really short-sighted. Anyone in mental health would have told you, oh, that's going to go really poorly and we're going to have a lot of issues. How much impact is the masks? in schools for these kids, do you think? I think that's huge and we shouldn't discount it, right? Um, That first off, kids with disabilities, right? That's gonna impact them a ton. When we I wanna wanna interrupt you with that. You had mentioned earlier in the conversation, um, your experience with deaf people. I'm assuming that, I mean, of all all the constituencies being harmed by widespread masking, it's gotta be enormous for deaf people who are used to, you know, reading lips to help them and everything. Is that, is that, is that accurate? That's totally accurate. I think it's also fair to say that there's a lot of people walking around that don't know that they have hearing loss until the world all of a sudden masked up. And then they discovered, and you know, if you talk to any older folks at home or even some of our older teachers, they'll say, I'm really having a hard time struggling to understand my students. What happens when you don't understand people as well? Your frustration tolerance, kind of like your fuse for life gets short. And so it's a lot harder. We also know that kids aren't able then to pick up on those nonverbal cues of their teachers, right? We all know the teacher look and the facial expression that means get your stuff together. So we've kind of taken away that tool from some of our teachers when we're requiring them to all be in masks. I've tried to make the best of it in my clinical work and I wear clear masks all the time so that people can see my facial expression. They're more expensive. They're a resource that our schools should be using if they're requiring masks in my personal opinion. Um, but I think it's huge. Kids have not learned how to navigate some of this and we've taken away some of their cues to say that things like facial expression isn't important is to just fail to recognize a gigantic portion of human connection that we've taken away. So I think it definitely contributes and we shouldn't overlook that. So are there exit ramps here? I mean, are we ever getting out of this? Oh my goodness. I I know we need parents to speak up. We need a lot of people to speak up, but how how do we get out of this? I think we need to have some hope and we need to demand those exit ramps and we need to demand those off ramps because the longer we go on, and this is just, you know, psych research, we know the longer we continue to expose our children to this chronic type of stressor where life is unpredictable, where if I'm exposed to somebody at school with COVID, I might get quarantined and sent home for 10 days. That's lack of, you know, predictability and structure. That's not what you need to grow up happy and healthy. And the more we more quickly we can return our children to normalcy, to routines, to predictability and structure, the better off their mental health is going to be and the better their academic outcomes will be. If we don't start demanding off-ramps for this stuff, I think it's we risk just perpetually exposing them to these things until it becomes really clear. And it's going to become really clear in ugly ways. I think one of the things we're seeing is massive exodus from kindergarten right? Like kindergarten enrollment is down nationwide around between nine to 13%. And that's higher in urban areas and higher in lower income households. And that's terrifying to me because that has huge long-term implications. Are they homeschooling or they're just not, we don't, they're not going to school that we don't even know. 
we don't even know, right? Like, so if you look at the data on students that were lost to the system, LA Unified lost contact with something like over 8,000 students. New York City schools lost contact with thousands of students. There are thousands of kids walking around in the US where their schools have just literally lost them. And I think that has gigantic implications for society. We know that those children are gonna be more likely to enter the juvenile justice system, less likely to complete education and become gainfully employed. And these kids didn't do anything wrong. But when we took away those social safety nets, we really did wrong by them. Yeah. And there's also the safety of having mandated reporters have eyes on these kids. And so, I mean, I can tell you as a homeschool parent, um, the first time that the, I mean, outside of doctors, which are optional, I don't have to bring my child to a doctor. No one's telling me to bring my child to a doctor. But um, the first time the state in like, you know, capital letters, the state knows that my children exist um, is when I fill out that paperwork um, for something, either homeschooling or public school. And when parents had no reason to sign their children up for public school and they just became lost, that's a that's a physical safety issue. Um, I talked uh, last week on the podcast about a really horrifying story in the Daily Mail about a six-year-old who um, just needlessly died because mandated reporters weren't watching. And I think that something that I read once um, that really stuck with me that, you know, in in Canada, they're sort of unearthing all these like mass graves outside of these boarding schools for indigenous youth. And I think that um, in some time, we're going to start finding ki literally kids' bodies. Um, and who was watching them? Nobody. Who was watching out for them? Not our society. Um, and it's, it's uh, I mean, we, we know the, it sounds hyperbolic, but we know the rates of um, child abuse coming into uh, pediatric ERs and it's higher and the injuries are much more severe because, um, you know, it escalates and it's a slow build. You don't, you don't go from like, you know, a little whop on the head to um, beating your child to the point of broken bones, but when you don't see the black and blue, it goes right to it goes right to broken bones. And I have to say, this worries me as a mental health professional, who's someone who's also a mandated reporter. I've made those calls as child protective services. I've had to do that, you know, walking a family through that and and making those calls. It's absolutely terrifying. I was just talking about it with some of our trainees this morning when we were talking about what do we need to be aware of in our assessments and educational disruption. And one big red flag that we are looking at more closely than ever is risk of abuse and neglect. We know that the reports to Child Protective Services tanked in pandemic and also the ability of those agencies to follow up on early reports, but it didn't mean that abuse and neglect stopped happening. If anything, it worsened. We know that substance use went up among families and among parents, and that places children at increased risk of abuse. So we know that we have more children kind of out there that didn't get reported to our systems for follow-up for investigation or even for resources, right? If you have a family that's stressed, a lot of times they just need help and nobody was getting, connecting these families with help and the children were the ones that were suffering. I think we're also starting to see those bodies pile up though, Bethany, and I don't mean to like get too gruesome, but just over the summer in Baltimore City, that happened where, you know, a child was found in the trunk of a car and no system knew about that child. And that's just terrifying to me. This is a child who was school age, who should have been registered in school, but she literally got lost to systems. And, you know, an aunt was supposedly providing care for her. It was kinship care, but she wasn't registered for school. And the next thing we know, we've, she's found in the trunk of a car dead. This is not okay. No, it's not. I'm going to try, I want to try to end this on a, on a positive note. I don't know if this question will lead to a positive answer. How resilient are kids? Now, we know there's going to be some educational loss, especially with lower income kids, that is probably permanent. But from a mental health, from a resiliency standpoint, if we went back to normal tomorrow, how long will it take? And I'm hoping the answer is not that long, you know, kids to, to kind of readjust to what used to be normal life. Or do you think these mental health issues and other issues will, will never leave them? I think the take home on resiliency is that adults are much more resilient than children and that children won't let us know that there's a problem until it's much later. So on the surface, we will have this good looking, I think everything's okay, but we're not gonna see the long-term outcomes that really terrify me about less people graduating from high school, 
less people attending college and getting gainfully employed until much later. Right now, I think a lot of us want to soothe ourselves and think it's all going to be okay. And it's not. So as the adults, I feel like we need to pick up the resiliency. So what can parents do, you know, other than fight for their kids, what, what can parents do in this situation that we're in with the schools being what they are and the libraries being closed and everything else? What can we do as parents? I think we need to, as a community and as individual parents, work to create as much normalcy as possible for our children in terms of structure, predictability, routine, reading to our kids and demanding that from our communities. I think those are two things that will help to increase the mental health and the educational outcomes of our communities dramatically. I feel like we only scratched the surface of all the stuff that you're doing. How can people find you on the internet? Because you are relentless and I think that um, people should should watch your relentlessness live. Well, that's, that warms my heart. So I'm on Twitter at, N, at Jen Reisman, J-E-N-R-E-E-S-M-A-N. I hope that folks in Montgomery County might check us out for Revive MoCo. And I also hope that folks will just do the thing of showing up at your local school board meeting. It helps look those folks in the eye and make sure that they're looking at you when they're making decisions. Parents count. I'd like to have you back again because um, you're still fighting the good fight and, and I'd love to hear more updates about what you're doing to, um, to shame these people into doing right by our kids. Um, thank you so much, Dan. I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day. Thank you. Well, that was a terrific conversation, a little, a little frightening in what we are doing to our children. Uh, but Dr. Jen Reisman certainly added some interesting insight into what we are doing to our children and how we can fight back a little bit. So thank you very much for everybody listening to Take Back Our Schools. We want to wish everyone a happy holiday. I think this is our last broadcast for the year. So happy new year. Uh, we hope you enjoyed what you are listening to. And if you did, and we hope you did, then please give us a five-star rating on wherever you like to listen to your podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever else. And we thank the Ricochet Network for hosting us. Um, I'm Andrew Gutman. You can find me at on Twitter at Andrew Gutman. It's G-U-T-M-A-N-N. Also, you can find me at speakupforeducation.org. My email is there. My co-host, Bethany, you want to give your contact info? Yeah. So uh, my name is Bethany Mandel and all of my online social media handles are actually my first and middle name because I thought I was being very smart before I got married, not making it my last name. But now everyone thinks that Sean Dark was actually my maiden name. It's not, it's my middle name. So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, although I don't post on Facebook at Bethany Shondark, S-H-O-N-D-A-R-K. I am joined today by my child who um, likes to make sound effects in the background. So I hope you all enjoyed that. Um, And I, I think that's all we've got, right? This is it. Yeah. So thanks again for listening and have a happy holiday season and happy new year. And we'll talk to you again soon. Happy holidays. Happy new year. Ricochet. Join the conversation.